0: Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. Today I'm talking to Neil Burgess. Neil has a master's in science and works as a wildlife biologist for the federal government. In his spare time, he pursues his passion for learning more about shipwrecks in this province. With friends, he established the Shipwreck Preservation Society of Newfoundland and Labrador five years ago. The aim of the Shipwreck Society is to document, protect, and promote awareness of shipwrecks and nautical history across the province. The Society is currently working with the Bell Island Heritage Society to create a virtual museum exhibit online of the U-boat attacks at Bell Island in 1942 and the sinking of four ore ships. Neil, welcome to the show. Hi. So, where should we start? How did you get interested in underwater archaeology? Maybe there's a good... Uh, or shipwrecks.
1: I, I started diving in, oh, about... 20, uh, 2011 with my wife and was immediately drawn to the Bell Island shipwrecks, which are a really popular uh, shipwreck diving location here in Newfoundland. And I just got curious, I guess, yep. and, and wanted to pursue that. I, talking with other divers, the, the magic number that everybody mentions is there's 10,000 shipwrecks around Newfoundland. And that's more myth and legend than <laughs> reality, perhaps. But it, it's... After doing some research, that number is completely believable. Yeah, uh, I've seen some old shipwreck maps from the 1800s. For a 20-year period, there are thousands of shipwrecks. Yeah. So there's a huge number, and most of them have probably deterioro- deteriorated to the point where we couldn't even locate them but there's an awful lot that are still around and some go way back
0: yeah i remember i remember at one point uh, robert parsons uh the local writer who writes a lot about nautical history and shipwrecks he had put out a, a shipwreck map i think and i, and I remember being mm-hmm. very uh, kind of impressed by the number of of shipwrecks like some of the some of the more treacherous coastlines have just
1: Huge oh, numbers. Cape, Cape Race and that whole southern shore from Cappa Hayden around to Portugal Cove South has got probably a third of the shipwrecks in the province. Right. Like the density of them there. Yeah. And there's an old story that may or may not be true. But the, the Associated Press, when the, wire, when the uh, telegraph station was set up on Cape Race, It was the first place that information could be distributed to the rest of North America before there were transatlantic cables. And supposedly, ship's captains were paid a few shillings to drop the latest news from Europe in a waterproof canister to a a rowboat team of Associated Press guys that, that worked out of the Cape Race Lighthouse. And supposedly, in the fog, a lot of those ships crashed into the cliffs and were sunk so for the sake of the captain making a few shillings from associated press um, all those people came to grief down in that area for decades when there was no transatlantic cable for getting news from europe to north america right yeah Mm -hmm. so i like i don't know if that story is completely (coughs) true or not but that's what i've heard and of course Cape Race was the first landfall. It's what ships tended to aim for when they were doing the transatlantic crossing. It was the first place they came to, and in the fog and with currents and all that, they yeah. came to grief.
0: Yeah, and and in, I think in an earlier period, that that coastline was also a, a rewatering spot. Like there are there are stories about the Pilgrims. You know, sure. uh, stopping in Newfoundland to, to get fresh water before they continued on.
1: To, that makes perfect sense. Because, I mean, if you've been, especially if you'd encountered storms and been had a really slow crossing, your supplies would be getting really down. And water was always a challenge, having potable like water that was still good to drink yeah. after weeks and weeks and weeks at sea. So I can see that. They wanted to put a boat ashore and, yeah. with barrels and get fresh water. Do Do you remember your first uh, your first
0: dive on on the the Bell Island wrecks? Remember kind of seeing that for the first time?
1: Yes, I I was amazed at the size of the wrecks. Some of them are four hundred and fifty feet long, and in a half hour dive, that's barely enough time to go, you know, all the way around the rail of the ship. You know, from the stern to the the bow and back again, and I, it, I was just flummoxed at the size of them. Yeah. And then, as you looked at the ships, you realized that um, they weren't. It wasn't just old rusting steel. They were completely overgrown with life now. So there's anemones, and there's flounder, and there's sculpin, and there's mussels and clams. I mean, there's just a whole range of colorful things. Lots of uh, there's a pink coralline algae that grows on, and if you have a light with you uh, down there, the colors just pop when you get down there, and it's just amazing to see that. Yeah. On the other hand, there's some very sobering sights. Like I remember probably on maybe the 10th time I was down there, we were swimming through what you, it looked like it used to be a washroom. So there was some broken-up toilets, and there was white and black tiling on the floor, which they often used in washrooms. And I came across a shoe. And, you know, it's hard not to think that somebody was probably in that shoe when the boat was sunk. And that's what remains now. There's there's 70 men that died uh, when the four boats were sunk. And uh, it was horrific, the scene. When the rescuers from Lance Cove went out to pick up survivors and stuff, there was all manner of, dead bodies and parts floating around in the water because the torpedoes just have a tremendous explosive wallop.
0: So I, I think many Newfoundlanders who are listening to this will, will know the story of, of the Bell Island attack but for, for people who might be listening from further afield, uh, can you can you go back to that day and tell us what would have
1: happened? Because or, or
0: the, sure. there was more than one attack.
1: There was two attacks. Yeah. The first one was the 5th of September in 1942 and at that time the Bell Island iron ore mine was the largest iron ore mine in the British Empire and for England and the Commonwealth to produce ships and tanks and all the equipment of war they needed steel so that mine was a huge source it produced about a third of the iron ore in Canada at the time and all of that ore went over to Sydney to the steel mill there Um, so just before lunchtime, late morning on the fifth of September, there was five or six ships in the tickle. Uh, they were all at anchor. Some of them were at at the loading piers, and um, the Saginaga, Lord Strathcona, Evelyn B, and some of the others were anchored between Little Bell Island and Bell Island, just sitting there. Uh, what they do would do is wait for a bunch of ships to get loaded, and then they'd send them in convoy over. To Sydney with some navy ships to protect them, so they th- these ships were just sitting waiting. And out of the blue, um, all of a sudden, the Saganaga exploded. And at first, people didn't know what it was, whether a boiler had you know exploded by mistake or accident. Uh, but then, half a minute later, another torpedo hit, and people realized, okay, we're under attack. Yeah. Um. The Saginaw, the explosion was so great with it, it folded up in half. Um, and to this day, there's, there's evidence of that when you dive down on the wreck. Um, what happened then was the people on the Lord Strathcona, which was the closest ship nearby, were just basically horrified by what they saw. And they disobeyed the orders to stay on board and shoot the stern gun. At whatever they could see And they Escaped on the lifeboats And went directly over to where the Saganaga Had been started pulling up survivors As a result of that About 20 minutes, half an hour later The U-boat Fired torpedoes at the Lord Strathcona And sunk it And it it took about a minute and a half to sink But nobody was on it So nobody was lost There was 30 people lost on the PLM Oh, sorry, on the uh, Saganaga. And um, there was a customs boat that had just been out checking the ships, inspecting the ships, and they happened to be heading back into Lance Cove at the time, and the Saginaw exploded, they went out started rescuing people, got a boatload of survivors and dead bodies, started heading into Lance Cove, and the story goes that they heard a noise go under their boat as they rose up on a wave, and... Twenty seconds later, the Lord Strathcona exploded. So they think it, the people on that customs boat are convinced that a torpedo went underneath them, right, and hit, hit the Lord Strathcona. So really scary times. Yeah. So that people uh, in Lance Cove put out in dories and h- helped with the rescuing. They brought everybody into Lance Cove. Some of the guys were or- some of the sailors were already dead. Some of them were mortally wounded, and a lot of them were injured and in bad shape. There was a lot of fuel oil in the water, so a lot of the guys had breathed that in when they were struggling. So they were taken into the houses. Uh, So the Reese's and the other families in Cove took the survivors in and started caring for them. And Dr. Templeton, who was the doctor on the island, was there within a few minutes and started tending to the more serious cases. Um, I think they recovered four bodies in that first attack and they were taken up to um, Wabana and they wake them and had a huge funeral Uh, there was a huge funeral procession going to the cemetery from the churches uh, for that so that really threw people in Newfoundland because it's the first time an attack really came home (coughs) later that fall the caribou ferry was sunk out on the west coast uh, with a huge loss of life out there and then in November the 2nd of November a U-boat returned to it was a different U-boat returned to uh, the Tickle in Belle Island and in the middle of the night like 3 o'clock in the morning it attacked uh, two boats that were anchored in exactly the same place Uh, and it first struck the Rose Castle and then it sunk the PLM a few minutes later and one of it—it it shot a, a bunch of torpedoes. Most of them struck the two ships, but one of them went actually underneath its target, which was uh, uh, one of the ships tied up at the wharf, and struck the Scotia Pier. And that explosion was kind of transmitted throughout the island, and people remember being woken up in the middle of the night by the shaking of their house at that explosion, mm. and. Uh, Again, there was a bunch of people killed, 40 people killed in all on the two ships because everybody who wasn't on watch was asleep in their bunk. And uh, again, people set out from Lance Cove to rescue survivors, and a lot were picked up. Luckily, this time, the two ships were anchored closer to Belle Island, so a lot of the sailors were able to swim ashore. They could see the lights in Lance Cove and swim ashore and again there was more bodies recovered this time from that second attack and again there was a big funeral um the survivors were cared for in Lance Cove in the homes and uh, they actually closed the mine for the funeral and the procession to the cemetery for the second attack what what do we know
0: about the the u-boats themselves that the, the the boats that were making these attacks we actually
1: know a lot because um the german navy was fastidious about keeping records. So we have uh, the logbooks from the U-boats because both of these U-boats got back to Germany at the end of the patrols, so the logbooks were filed at the Admiralty there. So we have those logbooks. They've all been translated into English. Um, one of the things that I've been able to do is I, through reading on the Internet, I realized that these U-boats had a torpedo-targeting computer on them, And the U-boat captain and the crew entered data into that. You know, the bearing of the U-boat, the bearing to the ship, the distance to the ship, the running time of the torpedo, all that kind of stuff. And they wrote all that down. So I managed to track down those reports uh, in German, obviously, in in a German library, and I've got those back. So we're now in the position with a little bit more research. I think this fall we'll be able to do a reconstruction of exactly where all the ships were and all the U-boats and where the U-boats went and where the exact locations where they fired. You'll the be able to map all that out. Map it all out. Yeah. So that's called battlefield archaeology. And, and in our Shipwreck Preservation Society, we're lucky to have uh, a maritime archaeologist on our group who's also the captain of a, a seafloor mapping vessel. And he's gone out with his vessel with sonar mapping, multi-beam, and he's mapped the entire tickle. So we know where the wrecks are and all that. The holy grail in the search out there is the first U-boat that came in for the first attack. It was the boys' first patrol, and they were jittery. And the first torpe- two torpedoes they fired, the motors didn't turn on, and the torpedoes sunk harmlessly to the bottom. And I can imagine the language coming out of the captain <laughs> yes, when that yeah. happened. So apparently, through through reading... Um, there are, were switches. They had the torpedo batteries charging normally, and they had to turn switches to make them fire, engage when they went out of the torpedo tubes, and the crew forgot to turn the switches. So there are two live torpedoes lying two on the Two
0: live German U-boat torpedoes somewhere at the
1: bottom of Conception Bay. And, and nobody's found them. People have looked, but now that we have these torpedo firing reports, we'll be able to, I think, calculate fairly accurately, where those torpedoes must be mm-hmm. and go out with some gear to uh, find them. But I don't want to go anywhere near them, darling. <laughs> <or them, laughs> no, that's good. Because they're still alive. The, 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 the only thing that that um, is perhaps encouraging about it is the torpedoes had little tiny propellers on the front, and they had to travel a certain distance and turn those little propellers enough to arm the warhead. And I don't think these ones would have traveled far enough to arm Right. But I'm still not going near them. <laughs> <laughs> there's, uh, there's lots of,
0: uh, there's lots of oral history or folklore about the U boats in Conception Bay. Like I've heard people tell stories about, oh, my, my grandfather remembers being in Clark's Beach Harbor, for example, and, and then seeing a U boat kind of coming to the surface. Yeah. And I guess they would come to the surface to recharge their batteries. Yeah. And how much of that do you think is, is accurate, and how much of it do you think is is kind of legends that have grown up after the Bell Island attacks?
1: I, I like I don't know how much of that is people reading about U-boats and then kind of having you know, these manufactured yes little, manufactured memories a yeah story. But uh, U-boats in those days traveled on the surface as much as they could. Um, it was really only the danger of being attacked by uh, an Allied plane that drove them underwater. The air uh, purification on them was basically non-existent. So if they ran for more than about 18 hours submerged, it the air became toxic underneath. The boys had a really hard time. They'd actually tell the crew to go to sleep, except for the you know very few required to drive the boat. Um, so they traveled on the surface. They could also go to almost 20 knots, 18 knots on the surface, and they could only go 7 knots submerged. Okay. So it was much better for them to travel travel on the uh, surface. They could run on diesel engines on the surface. Underwater, they had to run on battery power and electric motors. So they could only do that for a limited time. So every 24 hours, they had to come to the surface for a few hours to recharge batteries. But they much preferred to travel on the surface if they could. Hmm. So quite often, they might um, go on batteries underwater during the day, and then come to surface and steam all night on the surface. So in the course of doing some reading about U boats and where they went around Newfoundland, they were all over the place um, around Newfoundland. The Strait of Belle Isle was a very popular uh, patrolling area for them because they knew a lot of ships went, going to Montreal, went through the Strait of Belle Isle. They were all through the Gulf of St. Lawrence, particularly in 1942. They actually were dropping spies off on land. There's uh, documented uh, cases of, actually, the Second boat that attacked at Bell Island, then went over to Gas Bay and dropped off an agent there, a German agent who was trying to get information on shipping. He was caught within twenty four hours. Um, <laughs> the, one of the
0: stories I've heard, and I, and again, you, you know, sometimes you don't know how much truth there is, but uh, story about the um, the the sub that was captured, the periscope of which is now mm-hmm. at the Crow's Nest. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the stories I heard was that when the when the crew was you know, captured and brought onto land. That the the men had tickets from the movies in Halifax in their pockets.
1: There's all kinds of stories of sailors from U-boats coming ashore, and that's common in in Newfoundland and in the Maritimes uh, for buying food, buying fish, having uh, their laundry done is another one I've heard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> going to the movies, whatever. I I have no idea how much of that is true. Yeah, I mean it's when you think of. The amount of training and effort, and how determined most of these U-boat crews were, I, I suspect they'd be pretty hesitant to blow their cover,
0: just to go see a movie in Halifax. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a <laughs> bit of a stretch. Yeah. But
1: I mean, there's been a whole books, fiction books, written on U-boats coming in and basically making friends with outports around Newfoundland. Yeah, and I, I don't know to what extent that's true. But it's there, there are cases. Um, off uh Spain and Portugal where U boats surfaced and bought fish from fishing boats. Okay. So that's true there, so it, it could possibly be true yeah. here too. So now
0: part of your the project that you're working on now, uh you're developing an exhibit uh with the Virtual Museums of Canada project, the, the Canadian Museum of History. Um and, and you're looking for uh, people's memories, uh family stories about these uh, the wrecks and the attacks. Um what kind of what kind of stuff have you heard so far and and are there people still around who remember the events of those days
1: Oh yes um so the actual eyewitnesses um, many of them have now passed away but there are still a few around and luckily there are written accounts and TV and audio interviews of many uh from you know 10 or 15 years ago Um so we're lucky to take advantage of those but um, a fellow uh, name of Lloyd Reese grew up in Lance Cove he was a teenager at the time of the attacks and then back in the early 90's he actually wrote an uh, eyewitness account of the day when the first attacks happened and the day when the second the night when the second attacks happened and he posted that on the internet um, unfortunately Mr. Reese passed away a few years ago but that written account still exists um, there's been a number of books written uh, on U-boat and submarine uh, warfare in eastern Canada. There's been Steve Neri's book, The Enemy on Our Doorstep, mm-hmm. which was written in the 90s specifically about the U-boat attacks at Bell Island. And he gathered a lot of eyewitness accounts as well. There's one fellow, uh, Pat Mansfield, who I believe is l- living over on Belle Island still, who's in his 90s who was a sailor on one of the other ships in Belle Island Tickle when the attack happened and I'm looking forward to talking to him if I can.
0: And there might also be families of the people who took in survivors or helped with the efforts afterwards. Yeah, the
1: folks in Lance Cove on Belle Island, uh, many of the men rowed out in, in small boats to rescue survivors in the water in the two attacks because the water was cold, cold and uh, the 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 guys in the water were thrashing around. There was a lot of fuel oil in the water from the ships that were sunk. And uh, the men from Lance Cove brought them back to shore, um, took them into the homes, and and mostly the women cared for the guys. Uh, And Dr. Templeton on the island, he came down and, and took care of the more severe cases. But there's going to be family stories again from... All of those families where the men helped rescue the guys, the women helped care for them. Um, it, it touched a lot of people on Belle Island.
0: Are there are there gaps in the story that you are hoping to kind of fill in? Are there things you don't know that you would like to know about?
1: Uh, it, it would be great to hear more about how the people on Belle Island were affected by this. Yep. I mean, this was basically the Second World War coming to their doorstep and and happening right at home up until that point the war had been something that was happening you know in europe in africa maybe to relatives or people they knew as sailors you know on convoys across the atlantic but it had never come to the shores of newfoundland so this was a huge change for how they perceived the war and where the enemy actually was mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've heard uh, there's a written account that people were very hesitant to take the ferry from Belle Island to Portugal Cove afterwards because they were scared the U boats were still yeah. there and going yeah. to attack. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it changed life. Um, certainly, there was a lot of uh, Newfoundland militia on Belle Island. They manned the two cannons that are uh, by the beach, by the ferry terminal. And. There was a lot of uh, military on the island who were lookouts and that kind of thing. And, I mean, it would have completely changed their attitude towards the war. Right. So I'd, I'd like to hear more about that kind of stuff. One of the gaps we'd like to to solve is the first U-boat that came in for the attack um, shot those two torpedoes that didn't work. We'd like to find where they are. Um, and with, I think, with some sonar work and with some magnetometer work and some other stuff. We could maybe find those two torpedoes. That would be a little more of the story. But if we could reconstruct the movements of the U-boat when they did the attacks, that would be interesting. I mean, it's not going to pay any bills or anything, but it's going to be an interesting (laughs) little archaeology Historic, historical exercise.
0: So, if if people have family stories or old photographs or you know memories of, of the events, how can they get in touch with you? What's what's the easiest way for them to contact you or the society?
1: Um, we've got a website uh, for the Shipwreck Preservation Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. We've also got a Facebook um, uh, page that people can look at. Um, you know, they can contact on the on the website there's a uh, an email that they can send a notice to if they've got stories if anybody's got artifacts in their homes on bell island or you know on portugal cove around conception bay uh, we'd love to take pictures of those at least and get the stories behind them but i mean the family stories are going to be of real interest so if people would be willing to you know, communicate those them by email, or we'd be very interested in going out and doing interviews with people, yeah. if they'd be agreeable to that.
0: Okay, and then all of this material will then uh, form the basis of a of a new website.
1: That's right. Yeah. So we're doing a virtual museum exhibit with uh, the Bell Island Heritage Society, and that's going to be a combination. It's basically going to be 20 chapters of the story. So why was the Bell Island uh, mine important to the war effort? Why did the subs come here to attack the ships? About the ships and the crews, um, about the submarines and the crews that were on them, and then about how uh, Bell Islanders were affected and how they responded to the uh, to the attacks and caring for the survivors.
0: Uh, we're drawing to the end here, but I'm, I'm curious, what is the state currently of the wrecks. Uh, they're protected.
1: It's an underwater archaeological site. It's an underwater archaeological site. It's been designated as a historic event by the province. We're actually um, starting to talk to Parks Canada now about working on uh, getting them designated as National Historic Sites. The wrecks are slowly deteriorating. Uh, one of them, the Saguenay, we've noticed that the stern is starting to fall over on the boat, so it's actually twisting off and falling over. Um, so the, they're slowly deteriorating. One thing that's been a problem in the past was uh, recreational divers looting artifacts, which is illegal. They're not allowed to take artifacts from uh, the wrecks. And people like Rick Stanley at Ocean Quest, who takes scuba divers out, have been very proactive in promoting you know, take pictures but don't take anything off the wrecks. Right. And so we can protect them and it, it allows other people and photographers to take pictures of things and help preserve that cultural heritage underwater.
0: Yeah. And this is a, a kind of part of that educational piece and letting yes. people know about their significance.
1: Yeah, yeah, we want to promote awareness among Newfoundlanders and Labradorians about their shipwreck heritage, about their nautical heritage and how important a part this played in the province's history. You know, and they can be uh, interested and curious and proud of what went on. And I mean, certainly Bell Islanders, like I'm amazed at their courage in going out uh, and helping the survivors and taking care of them. It was a massive effort.
0: Good. Well, thanks for coming on the show and good luck with the project. Thanks a lot. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our Heritage Broadcast Assistant is Natalie Dignam, in partnership with the Conservation Corps Newfoundland and Labrador ECHO Program. We would love to know what you think of the show. If you have a question or a suggestion for a future program, leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page, Email Podcast at gmail.com or tweet us at hfnlca. Thanks for listening.